Chapter 14 The argument started under a street lamp. Once Marie had ordered the taxi, it was only a matter of time. She and Otto were staring each other down. Their faces were pasty white. Tiny flecks of snow drifted in the glare between them. Their exchanges came in hot rushes of condensed breath, blowing the fine snow into the darkness beyond. Small groups coming out of Club Elysium didn't register the friction between them. These other gamblers called out hilariously and kept calling out, their envious hoots fading into the night. It hadn't occurred to Marie to question Otto's winning streak. She was no longer shocked by the bizarre traits this man kept coming up with. The bin bag was between them, at their feet. Otto's winnings had tied her to him. This was another aspect of herself that Marie wanted to undo, but couldn't. In her responses to his demands, she heard herself raging internally. Being morosely angry was the one release she still had. The more incensed Marie became, the more she felt she might be able to extract herself. As Otto seemed so desperate for her to go in the taxi with him, she stood her ground, flatly refusing. Distraught, unable to think of other ways of insisting, Otto glanced at the time again. He looked back at his wife's eyes. They were cold and green. He realized he was grinding his teeth. He thought, how can she not agree to come with me? Not only was her debt paid in full, there was 210,000 euros left over. But if the money made Otto so sure of himself, it seemed to make Marie more distant. And our son, he thought. There was everything that had happened with Jacob. That needed to be talked about too. And Izzy has to be rescued, he thought. She has to be rescued right away. I've given you her address, Marie said. Do what you like. I'm not coming. It's not a question of doing what I like. It's too late to go on a crusade, Marie said. Their conversation was held in the suspense of not knowing how long the taxi would take. Otto and Marie only stayed pinned to the halo of the streetlight for as long as they did because they knew the taxi was on its way. As the volume and rapidity of their exchanges increased, they both became more exasperated. When Otto had dropped the bin bag in the snow, a few bundles of banknotes had been exposed. They were poking out from the rim. He'd noticed it, but hadn't given it much thought. Although Marie continued to insist she wasn't going with him, her delivery faltered as she became more directly preoccupied by the money. Each time she made her point, she made it with finality, but she was trying to poke the banknotes back into the bag with the tip of her shoe. What's got into you? Otto yelled. With a gasp, she yanked her foot away. What exhausted her, even after a break of twenty years, was the introduction of anger as a propellant to their arguments. Marie preferred hatred. It was more subtle. She told Otto she was tired. She said she had to be at work at eight. She looked around for any vehicle that might be a taxi, but nothing moved in the pitch darkness. So far, she'd managed to hide the decimation she felt.
In that dingy place inside, she was a coat on a peg. It wasn't just that Marie couldn't wriggle free. She couldn't even move. She loathed what she was. She was nothing inside. She was a coat. That's what had got into her, she thought. She needed another cigarette. The clarity of her outrage gave her something to say. You were right to leave. What? You were wrong to come back. I had to do both, don't you see? I thought you preferred dismal endings. The bonnet of a taxi edged into view. As it did, the gravity of it all seemed to lift. They looked at the sleek black lines of the vehicle, and the quarrel that had been holding them together was suddenly gone. It became a mood instead. For Marie, this mood was the fear that hate would make her finish what she'd started. Otto picked up the bin bag. He hoiked it over his shoulder. In the mood he was in, there was no world anymore. He felt lost again. It confounded him that with all of the money they'd won, there seemed nothing worth buying. He climbed into the taxi and pulled the door to. The bag was between his legs. The driver nodded while Otto confirmed the address. Marie was still on the pavement. She hung in the air. It seemed to Otto that she was grappling with opposite urges. She'd already taken a step away, yet something unseen had stopped her walking out of his life altogether. She was reaching into her handbag, presumably for a cigarette, but something prevented her taking one out. It wasn't quite the future Otto was hoping for. There was no willingness about Marie's decision to get into the taxi. She'd thrown herself into the back seat, petulant in all her movements, rejecting his looks, refusing to say anything. Not for the first time, he strongly suspected it was the money pulling her along. But the more shocking feeling Otto couldn't displace as they sped up the road was that he was the one being pulled along. The interior of the car smelled like soap suds. It was a soft ride, punctuated by the flap of windshield wipers. Marie was sitting as far from Otto as she could, bunched towards her window, her head turned away, locked in that position. Otto saw the driver's eyes in the rear-view mirror, glancing nervously at them. The driver turned the radio on. The song was My Favorite Things, but not the original version. This was a bombastic take on it, with rap rhymes. Over the rumble of the engine, Otto heard someone say, Oh, we could be right you and me, like fantasy. But the irony was lost on him. As the streets and darkened buildings slipped by, all he could worry about was how he'd got himself into this mess. Marie took her phone out. The dull blue of the screen caught Otto's eye. What are you doing? he said. He said it in a way that made it clear he disapproved. Marie was writing a text. She didn't reply. The driver was tapping his finger to the beat. Instead of raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens, the radio song took a different line. 
diamonds and rubies. I'm crazy about Bentleys. The driver had given up trying to catch Otto's eye. His name was Farzad Nurani. Displayed on the dashboard alongside his identification was a photograph of a girl with long black hair. Sensitive to the possibility that the couple in the back were in no mood for conversation, Farzad refrained from pleasantries, which was how he ordinarily liked to make time pass. He'd noticed the bin bag. When he'd picked the warring couple up, he'd seen as plain as day that it was full of cash. Within a few minutes, the taxi had arrived at a cluster of residential blocks on the south side of the girdle. As it pulled up, a voice on the radio announced that the weather was set to brighten later. Farzad stopped the clock and twisted round to smile. He couldn't help glancing at the bin bag. Marie had already stepped out of the car. It was as if she'd never been in it. She was stood under another streetlight now already smoking another cigarette. What she'd said about auto-preferring dismal endings bothered him. He reached into the bag and pulled out a hundred-euro note. Here, he said, keep it. Farzad Nurani seized the banknote mechanically, but his face was slower to react. As his fare got out, the driver's gaping mouth began to crease up towards his nose. Buy your daughter something nice, Otto mumbled, taking his haul with him. Farzad recovered enough to be able to reply with the words, May God be your guardian. As he drove away, his lasting thought was that it was always in the middle of the night. You never knew what kind of fare you were going to get. Otto glanced at his watch again. It was one after two. He shook his wrist. The watch wasn't working, which annoyed him. Expecting him to follow, Marie had already moved on. As the taxi disappeared, she turned slightly. With one eyebrow arched, she exhaled a slip of smoke. The money was on the pavement. Otto had dropped it there so that he could tap his wristwatch. When Marie looked back at him, he felt it as a pressure and looked up. Aren't you coming? Forgetting about the time, he nodded and grabbed the bag. Although he didn't know what Marie was thinking, and it would have spoiled it to ask, he was glad that she'd said something. Soon there was standing at the entrance to a grey façade with several floors and regularly spaced windows. Marie let herself in with a key. Once inside, Otto shuddered. It wasn't colder in the hallway. It was more miserable. There was an umbrella on the floor, the fabric shredded the ribs exposed. Stacks of mail, flyers and free newspapers lay wet and trodden on the flagstones. Marie was already walking up the steps ahead of him. She trailed a line of smoke for Otto to go after. Expecting a long climb, he flung the bin bag over his shoulder. He thought of things to say as Marie guided him upwards, but saved his breath for later. There was so much to talk about. Each landing was hardened by the glare of a single light bulb. The smoke Marie exhaled cloyed to the casings. 
Landing after landing, they climbed out of the dark into harshly illuminated spaces strewn with unwanted things and discarded litter. On the third landing, someone had left a stack of old paperbacks in a box for anyone to take. By the time they got to the top, Otto was out of breath. Marie's face was yellow. He imagined his was too. She had a key for one of the two maroon doors on the landing. Hanging sideways above one of the doors on a single screw was the number 88. Otto braced himself as Marie turned the key. She pushed the door open so he could go in first. His eyes hadn't adjusted to the dark yet. He could sense he was somewhere squalid. The reek of unwashed bodies, musty sheets and rotting food was offset by a stronger metallic odor. The only window in the room didn't have curtains. Below it, near the floor, Otto thought he saw a flicker. There was a shape there, but it didn't move. As he crept along, an object made of glass cracked under his shoe. He made a sound like it might have hurt, then took another step and bumped his shin against the corner of a bed. Although he'd only knocked himself gently, the pain was excruciating. He didn't want to put the money down, not until he'd found a light and could see where he was putting it. The shape under the window was a person sitting cross-legged on the floor. The soft light he could see was her phone. Its glow gave her forehead a blue tint. Her hair was straggled either side of her face. She didn't look up or acknowledge that anyone else was in the room with her. Dumping the bin bag on the unmade bed, Otto took a few steps and kneeled next to his daughter. She glanced up, then back at her screen. She'd been smoking heroin out of a pipe. The pipe was smoldering on the floor. Otto pushed it away and adjusted his position so he could take Izzy's face in his hands. He guided her face up, making her look at him. Even though she smiled, there was no conviction in it. The clip playing on her phone was in English. Over an image of the surface of the earth, with the moon rising behind it, a nasal voice announced that the planet was gestating a new organism called humanity, by now comprised of seven billion cells and growing. Otto was still holding Izzy's face when she dropped the phone and tried to whisper something. He couldn't hear what she was trying to say. He leaned in. What is it, he asked. Everything is true. What do you mean? No matter what it is, it's true. Izzy seemed more alert now. He let go of her head. She continued to gaze at her father's face, not wanting to take her eyes away yet. She may even have recognized him as he wrapped a blanket around her shoulders. Then, without warning, her pupils widened. Before the overhead light was flipped on, she managed to hide her eyes. Otto turned to see his son. The wallpaper in the room was peeling and moldy. A pile of unwashed plates lay on the carpet. Jacob was standing near his mother. He'd swiped the bin bag off the bed. It was at his feet now. With one hand, he swept his hair back gracefully. He put the other hand to his nose so he could hold his nostrils. 
What's going on? Otto said, surprised that he was asking in English. The question released everything he'd been trying to suppress all day. Despite Izzy's condition, she understood his question and moaned quietly. What's going on? Otto was looking between Marie and Jacob. He knew exactly what was going on. All he could do was look. <laughs> I hear you've had quite a night, Jacob giggled. What made you want to end the party in this dump? Jacob's voice made Otto's eyes crease reflexively. It wasn't only the words that were hurtful. The tone was so victorious. Marie, on the other hand, remained inscrutable. There was no gesture to read. She was hardly present. All Marie wanted to do was hang there, like the coat on a peg she thought she was. There were some feelings left, but even those feelings had been colonized by insatiable urges. At that moment, she wanted another cigarette. Perhaps because of this, she was the first to notice the smoke. As absorbed as she was by the setting they'd made for themselves, she let her eyes stray to the open front door. It's time to go. They all heard her say, it's time to go. She was staring at the landing now. Jacob didn't move. Marie tugged his elbow. It's time, she said. Without articulating any part of his understanding, Otto let out a gasp. This was an ending. This was the ending. And still Jacob didn't go. Despite the urgency of Marie's interruptions, the boy needed to watch his father sink in the ruins of his return. It's the apocalypse, he said, smiling. Otto might have known. It was obvious there was going to be a fire in the end. He couldn't help thinking about what Izzy had said. Her words still rang in his ears. Everything was true. Everything is 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 true. They came to a pitch in Otto's mind and then died. He found himself knowing what it was to rise up. He knew he could make it happen. It seemed easy, like lifting his hand. He put his arm across Izzy's shoulders. She rose up, too. Smoke had begun to seep through the doorway. For a moment they were suspended over the unmade bed, looking down at it. Marie was floating. So was Jacob. In Otto's ending, everyone who was human rose up in this way, children and babies included. Marie was coughing. She held the collar of her coat close to her mouth. She was pulling herself along the ceiling, away from the smoke. She'd lost her Russian hat somewhere. Before Jacob was raised off the floor, he'd managed to grab the bin bag. It hung from his hand now, like an upside-down balloon. Some of the bundles of money had fallen to the carpet. He was trying to secure the rim of the bag as he crawled after his mother, upside down, edging himself across the ceiling towards the open window. Otto and Izzy were out in the night. He'd managed to undo the catches on the window. When he'd heaved it open, cold air funneled into the room, sucking in a rush of flames from the stairway. Otto was telling Izzy to hold on tight. He'd been able to tuck her blanket around her body. Because they were so high over the street, rather than float any higher, they began to descend through the snowfall. Scenes like this were happening all over the world. 
the whole of humanity was rising up. People in buses and trains were being lifted out of their seats. Even those who were flying, as long as they weren't strapped in, rose to the top of the fuselage of whatever kind of aircraft they were in. Others, who had kept their seatbelts on, would have been lifted part of the way up, depending on how much slack there was, to hover where they were in a sitting position. On the lit side of the world, Otto thought of balloonists and mountaineers having to make sure they were holding on to ropes. He imagined the inexplicable buoyancy of humanity would last no more than a minute. He looked at his watch. It was one after two. He hugged Izzy tighter and hoped for a soft landing. Izzy seemed to be asleep. Many like her, Otto thought, lost or abandoned, would want to sleep through it all. Marie was right above them now. She'd let herself go completely. Her arms and legs were stretched out wide. She was staring up at the snowfall as it drifted out of the blackness. She seemed so relaxed. Others were more confused as they sailed out of the windows of the building, smoke belching out after them. Otto was glad to see Jacob float out next. He was clutching the bin bag with both hands, using his legs to kick at the air. It looked like he was trying to swim. In a less comfortable haze as they sank to the street, Otto realized that many situations across the planet would be more desperate. Millions would be engaged in a crisis of their own, where one minute might have made all the difference. He understood that lives would be endangered. Serious medical conditions requiring emergency procedures wouldn't be attended to as quickly as they should. People were bound to die, he realized, and all because, without thinking about it, he'd imagined everyone with the wings of an angel. There was some consolation. Wars would have to grind to a halt. The more experienced soldiers would still try to kill each other as they levitated, but the shock of being suspended would quickly take over. Any crimes underway, Otto thought, the murders, the rapes, the assaults, the robberies, they would be postponed as well, so that victims and criminals would have to look at each other as they floated in the air. Political deliberations, he told himself, no matter how important the agenda was, would become meaningless for 60 seconds as government leaders swam through conference rooms, their staff afloat alongside them, desperately trying to make calls on their mobiles, but the networks would all be down. Otto could see an infinite number of ordinary decisions about what to do next, all being overlooked for that moment. For the great majority of humans, everything would have to be set aside, just for a minute, in order for a single resounding question to be asked. The question would have to be something universal, like, what's going on? Every way of asking this, in every conceivable language, would occur to floaters everywhere in this uprising, just as it had occurred to Otto. From the perspective of being higher up than anyone would normally wish to be, just as gently and without regard to the circumstances of any one individual, after exactly 60 seconds, the suspension of humanity would come to an end. Izzy would become a dead weight in Otto's arms. Some distance away, Jacob would come down. He would be too disturbed to react the way he might normally react. He would still have the bin bag, but he wouldn't care. Marie would be in a daze of her own. 
her shock would be more alive and healthy than it had been for a long time. There would be no streetlights, but Izzy's building would be ablaze. All four would come to the ground in their respective positions, not close to each other, but in relation to one another. They would see each other. Dozens of others would be there too, waiting in the snow for something to happen. Otto found himself thinking he might have to go into hiding. There might be recriminations. On second thoughts, he couldn't be sure that he'd had anything to do with stopping the spinning planet. As his uncertainty crystallized, he couldn't help regretting how short it had been. He could imagine people talking for generations about where they were and what they were doing during that free minute in the air. It saddened him to have to conclude that even this would fade with memory in the end. The Uprising To me, it was as if all the edges of reality were seamless. Each moment to the next was no longer the jagged sequence I was familiar with. All of it gushed into the end of time. Even if it looked as though I was somewhere I'd already been, I couldn't tell where I was anymore. Around me swirled the facts my memories were still trying to convince me of. I could remember waking up from a nightmare in England. I remembered going to Vienna and having to stare at my shoes. There was Marie in my hotel room, and the love I felt, and the dog waiting to maul me. I knew about Anton's passing, too, so I must have outlasted who he was. My memories were orbiting a nucleus. I think I know what's inside that nucleus. It's not a memory. It's the way I remember. I would say this way of remembering, or the nucleus my memories adhere to, is what takes me where I go. When I think of it, most of us have longed to return to someone or something we can't help remembering. My fate was to be reunited with a woman I didn't know anymore, and the young people our children were, who I wouldn't have been able to recognize. What led Anton in his writing was an anatomy of my failures. Dying inhibited him, but not for long. What he went on to think of, even in death, was his own way of remembering. After receiving Urania's gift, he might have gone on dying forever. There were trillions of combinations the writer could have conjured with, yet it was always going to be something recognizable. Whatever it was he imagined, in myth or reality, he could only create things that were already known to him. As the seconds ticked by, he went to a cave. He went to a dog in the cave. Even though he was clinically dead, he went to a world bound to my ordeal in the cave. I can tell you what the dog saw when he looked over his shoulder. He didn't know he would look back, by the way. Anton genuinely believed he was following the Frenchman who was following a puppet of Orpheus out of hell. The impulse to look when he shouldn't have was triggered when he overheard Heraclitus talking about Otto in flames. 
within that title was Anton's way of remembering. What he saw when he looked was the priest and the philosopher walking towards him. In fact, the first thing Anton saw were the polished shoes the priest wore and his cassock swishing over them. Alongside that were the sandals Heraclitus had on and the philosopher's hairy legs. They were about twenty paces away, talking in echoes about the ending of the book he hadn't been able to finish. If you ask me to speak coherently about what happened, I would have to suppose that it happened because I was there. If I hadn't been there, I don't know how it could have happened. The truth is, I don't believe either Anton or I had anything to do with it. I might suggest that the nucleus of our combined memories is what made it happen, but I doubt this too. I don't think Anton would have agreed either. What attracts me now is the voice of mystery. It's the only voice that was always among us, and it only ever talked about going where we'd come from. Even the debate between the priest and the philosopher came full circle. Heraclitus was throwing his arms out in gestures expressive of outrage. He bristled at the thought of the irrational ending in Otto and Flames. He couldn't help being upset. Over the centuries, the philosopher hadn't softened. When he was young, he had no time for humans. Now that he had all the time in the world, he still didn't like them. It was laughable, he argued, that Otto and Flame should have ended with me lifting us all out of the fire. Fire is life, he kept on saying. Promontana waved his lit-up hand as he replied. The shine from his ring skewed their shadows along the passage walls. In many ways, he went along with Heraclitus. He knew how primary fire was. He was the one who'd given it to humans in the first place, he reminded the philosopher. But there was something in the darkness, he said with a sigh, that seemed more essential. Neither of them noticed the dog standing in their path. As the seconds ticked by, it seemed to Anton that the illumination emanating from Pramantano's ring was growing dimmer. At the same time, the approaching figures were getting smaller. It was Heraclitus who finally asked, in a squeaky voice, How did the gods come by fire? Pramantano made a resigned noise to indicate that this same question had been troubling him for most of eternity. The two figures were much smaller than the dog now. They continued to approach Anton at the same pace, but they were shrinking so fast it meant they never got closer. By the end of their conversation, it was as if they were walking on the spot and the ring on Promontana's hand was no more than a twinkle. Even though Anton towered above them, they didn't see him. Promontana was reminding Heraclitus that in bygone days, the philosopher had written a book in which he'd said that wisdom had only one purpose. It was to know the thought by which all things are steered through all things. Did I say that? Heraclitus asked. Someone had to say it. Promontano mused. Anton was still in the passage, towering above them, but the voices were too faint to hear anymore. It occurred to him then that the tiny figures weren't getting smaller. Rather, he was getting bigger. 
As this more accurate perspective dawned, he became so dizzy with his size that he didn't understand how he could still be in the cave. The last thing he heard Oksana say was, How will I ever finish you? After that, he couldn't move. There were no feelings. There were memories of feelings. There were so many of these, they were like all his voices talking at once. It was deafening, but at last it was fading. How silent it would be very soon. He remembered the ultimate feeling of rising up. In that recollection, when the voices in his head had swollen to such an intensity he thought he might burst, everything stopped. Up he went, up in a hush he could float out of without feeling it. There was nothing to hear, not even the hissing he used to hear in silences. There was nothing to smell. He remembered how smelly everything used to be. He realized then that he could just about remember seeing things. The first thing he saw was the forest of paintings. His body was dressed in furs and leathers. It was balanced on the rocking horse. It was leaning against the skylight, still wearing the huge papaka. His eyes were closed. It was the middle of the afternoon. He knew this too, because if he angled his regard slightly, he could see his timepiece in his lifeless hand. His hand had fallen to his lap. He could see what time it was. Most of what happened took place in the space of that minute. Oksana was working on a dark parting between Anton's lips. Her hands and face were smudged in the colors on her palate. Unaware of his passing, or unable to tolerate it, she was using a brush to produce the most delicate strokes. Adrift as he was, Anton could recall what had happened in the café. What had happened, put simply, was that he'd gone into a cave he couldn't get out of. Even though Orpheus had warned him not to, Anton hadn't been able to resist looking back. But he didn't regret this. He was already dead. So he ghosted himself to a position above Oksana's right shoulder. The painting was shrouded in gloom, but the colors were so rich and bright he could see everything he needed to see. Captured on the canvas was the head and shoulders of a writer with a bushy beard. His papaka was cockeyed. He was almost in profile, eyes wide open, turning in his saddle to see what was happening. The expression he wore was one of bafflement, but there was a flush of amazement on his open lips. Oksana had been free with her handling of his soul. By coming back, Anton had fulfilled his promise to her. She wiped her brush into her palm. As she got ready to add the final touches, he reached down to hold her hand. His right hand was over her right hand. He thought he could feel the movements they were making. She continued to paint. His hand remained over hers. Their hands moved together. With the most delicate of flicks, using the tip of the hairs on her finest brush, she worked two thin white reflections into his eyes, which made them come alive. 